From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Thursday, June 21st. I'm Marco Werman. A Syrian fighter pilot flies to Jordan and gets political asylum. Also, how weapons for Syria's rebels are slipping into the country. And later, the legacy of Leslie Brown, mother to the world's first test tube baby. Because of her bravery, she initiated an entire new technology and an entirely new way of thinking about having children. Plus, a message from school children in Malawi to a young food blogger in Scotland. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Throughout the conflict in Syria, we've been hearing about how loyal the country's elite military units are to President Bashar al-Assad. That's said to be especially the case among Air Force officers. Well, today, one of those officers, a colonel, piloted his MiG jet fighter over the border into Jordan. He asked for political asylum, and he got it. The BBC's Jim Muir is following the story from Beirut. Jim, how did this pilot end up in Jordan? Well, he simply uh, got in his plane. Now, whether he was on a training flight or not, that's what the authorities are saying. He was on a training flight. Other accounts from opposition people say he he hopped into his plane and whizzed off at low altitude and sort of scooted around the radar and hopped over the border, uh, landing in a Jordanian air base and then asking for political asylum. Uh, The the end result is the same. The uh, authorities in Damascus, who are obviously quite angry, are sticking to their story that he was on a routine training flight near the border when he suddenly slipped off uh, out of uh, radio contact and uh, disappeared. Uh, They had announced it themselves, but implying that he might have either crashed or been shot down. But they did say he was near the southern border, and it turns out he wasn't near it. He was across it and busy landing in Jordan and demanding or at least requesting a political asylum, which the um, Jordanian authorities have now granted at cabinet level. So Mm. uh, he has been embraced in that sense. But uh, the Syrians are saying they would like to have the plane back. His name is Colonel Hassan al-Hamadeh. What do you know about him? Um, apparently, according to opposition people, he comes from Deir Zor and that his family, that's over in the east near the Iraqi border, and um, that his family are known as kind of opposition supporters. Now, I can't personally confirm that, but that's what they're saying. Other than that, uh, he was a colonel in the Air Force. He's now being branded a traitor and a deserter by the authorities who are saying that appropriate legal sanctions will be taken against him. So uh, it is, as I say, a bit of an embarrassment to them because the Air Force is a core of support for the regime. The the man who set up that regime, Hafez Assad, who staged a, what he called a corrective movement, a kind of coup in 1970, was from the Air Force. He was an Air Force pilot himself. And the Air Force is staunchly loyal to the regime. So to have a defection from its ranks is at the very least embarrassing. You said that he's still got family in Syria. What, what risks do they face now? 
Well, if they were living in what you might call government-controlled areas such as central Damascus, they would obviously be at risk of reprisal. That certainly is what the most senior political defector, the deputy oil minister, said when he snuck out of the country back in March, uh, although he had got his family out already. So I suspect that before taking a step like this, the pilot would have ensured that his family were okay. It could be that they're already in an area which has slipped out of government control because there is or is a rebel stronghold almost. There's clashes there all the time. Or they may indeed have slipped across the border to safety in Iraq or Turkey or even here in Lebanon. The BBC's Jim Yor in Beirut. Jim, thank you. You're most welcome, Marco. The defection of a Syrian Air Force colonel is certainly a boost to rebel morale, but it's increased access to weapons and aid that seems to be making a real difference to the Syrian rebels' cause. Joseph Holliday is an analyst at the Institute for the Study of War in Washington. He's been tracking the flow of weapons and aid to the Syrian rebels. Joe Holliday, first of all, where in Syria are these supplies getting across the border? Which borders? First of all, I would point out that since the beginning of the armed opposition last fall, most of the weapons that they've been getting have been coming from inside Syria. They've been taking them during raids on regime checkpoints, or they've been buying them from corrupt regime officials. They've also supplemented this by getting black market weapons across the borders, primarily from Lebanon and from Iraq. What's happened in the last month is uh, there have been uh, an increase in weapons coming across the Turkish border, and that's been reflected in rebel capabilities in the northern parts of the country. What are they getting? Well, the biggest thing that I've seen as far as uh, as far as what they've received is really just ammunition. Frankly, I haven't seen any higher end weapons any more than we've seen early on. Uh, it's just that they've been able to mount more operations, more attacks recently, which really points to more ammunition to use against the regime. The last thing I'd point out is that they're much better at using uh, roadside bombs at IEDs. Uh, and I think that's the primary thing contributing to their ability to defeat the regime's armor, their tanks. And wh- where are they getting the, the kind of knowledge about IEDs from? Frankly, it's not that complicated to build build these bombs. Uh, there's, there's information uh, from journalists in the country that they're building homemade explosives or, or mixing homemade explosives, as we saw in Iraq and Afghanistan. I think the biggest difference is they've started to use uh, bigger and bigger IEDs. There were a number of Syrians who, who fought in the insurgency in Iraq against the United States and the coalition there. And so uh, this, this cadre of individuals might have brought these capabilities back to Syria with them. So you're saying they're getting, uh, the, the rebels are getting a lot of ammunition. Are they getting money? Is that coming across the border as well? Up until you know, recently, money has been really the, the only thing they've gotten from the outside world. And that money is what has allowed them to purchase weapons from the Syrian officials or from black markets, as I discussed earlier. So I, I'd venture to bet that there's still more money coming across than anything else. And Joe, how are you able to track all of this from Washington? I spent a lot of energy uh, looking at YouTube videos, frankly. Uh, There's a lot of videos coming out, and they really come in two flavors. One of them are are statements from rebel commanders, and and these statements talk about where they're operating, who they are, what units they defected from, how they're organized, and how the units are related to one another. And that's really been the focus of my research. But there's also been a number of videos that show actual attacks, rebel activity. And so in these videos, you can see the weapons that they're using and how they're using them. For example, I have seen some advanced anti-tank guided missiles, but I've seen those since this past January. And uh, those were of the AT-7 variety, of which the regime has large stockpiles themselves. And, And still my assessment is that they've gotten those from within the country. 
Now, you've written that Syria is at a tipping point where uh, the, the rebels will soon have more territory under their control than Assad's regime. How much of Syria does the opposition control right now? Well, I think an important distinction is that I, I do believe they're about to own more of the country in physical space, but all of the key urban centers still belong to the Assad regime. So you have this urban-rural stalemate that's emerged in which the regime has enough forces to seize and to hold these key urban centers, but they don't have enough forces to pursue the rebels into the countryside. And for their part, the rebels have learned that when they are overmatched, when the regime brings enough combat power to defeat them, their best move is to withdraw rather than to stand and fight. There's a couple other factors here as well. First of all, the insurgency is inherently local, right? These guys all fight in their hometowns. And so they don't have the type of, of organization or, or professionalized military they would need to mount a, a, an offensive campaign. But as far as pure capabilities are concerned, the regime still has far more capabilities than that. Joseph Holliday with the Institute for the Study of War in Washington. His latest research is about the strength and effectiveness of Syria's armed opposition. Joe Holliday, thanks indeed. Thank you. You can get the latest news on Syria from our partners at the BBC and find more of our ongoing coverage, including maps of the region. That's all at theworld.org. Leslie Brown passed away this week at the age of 64. Those who knew the grandmother from Bristol, England, say she was a very quiet and private person. But back in July 1978, she made medical history by giving birth to her daughter Louise, the world's first test tube baby. Leslie Brown had been trying for a baby with her husband, John, for nine years before successfully conceiving through what was then the still experimental technique of in vitro fertilization. Millions of IVF babies have been born since. Robin Morantz Hennig is the author of Pandora's Baby, How the World's First Test Tube Baby Sparked the Reproductive Revolution. So, Robin, Leslie Brown's story, I mean, why did she consent to trying this method? Well, you know, she didn't realize that she was the first. That happened somewhere along the way, uh, that she was already pregnant, and it dawned on her because she was getting so much attention that she was the first ever. You mean when she went to the Bornhole Clinic, uh, she didn't say, has this ever been tried before? I'm sure she knew it was new and experimental, but she didn't seem to know that she was the first one in whom it had taken because she wasn't the first one to try it. She was just just the first successful one. I see. What were the fears of IVF at the time? And did uh, Leslie Brown have any hesitation about this experiment? I don't think she did personally. She wrote a a little memoir with her husband afterwards, um, and it didn't sound like they were concerned about what might be the outcome, but the world was very concerned. People thought that If you started manipulating eggs and sperm in a Petri dish, then you were likely to cause all sorts of chromosomal disruption and end up with a monster. Now, some of the kind of global fears about what IVF represented at the time, how did that translate for criticism for uh, Leslie Brown herself? Did she come under a lot of heat for doing what she did? It was mostly her doctors who came under heat, Patrick Steptoe and and Robert Edwards, Mm. who were the gynecologist and the experimental biologist who put this together. They were highly criticized and they were sort of presented as Frankenstein kind of uh, scientists. She was mostly the object of fascination. You know, when she got close to delivery, news reporters from all over the world were camped out on her front lawn and she had to actually go into hiding. She had to go into a hospital under an assumed name because everybody was so interested in what was going to happen. How long did it take before the IVF technology became really kind of common? It only took a few perfectly normal test tube babies to be born 
before people stopped being so worried about what was going to happen. I mean, it was really lucky that Louise Brown was perfectly healthy and beautiful because really that did a lot to assuage people's fears about what kind of uh, chromosomal aberration they were going to see. It's so accepted now. I'm wondering if you see any downsides today to, to all the IVF births. There seems to be a certain increase in certain kinds of birth defects that come about from IVF. But by and large, it's not the kind of wholesale birth defect factory that people had thought it was going to be. And it's hard to know when there are studies that show some higher rates of certain problems. It's hard to know whether it's the IVF itself or just whatever other problem had led to the infertility in the first place. What about some of the ethical dilemmas that IVF presents? I mean, first of all, allowing women to have kids later in life, but also, I mean, it's an incredibly expensive procedure that uh, most women on this planet can't afford. Right. Um, There's actually now apparently some IVF clinics in the developing world, which is a surprising uh, development, it seems to me, that some of these countries where overpopulation seems to be the main problem, if there are middle-class women who are infertile, they feel like they need to have services offered to them as well. One medical downside I neglected to mention was the um, greater likelihood of there being multiple births. Mm. Early on in the process, doctors often put back into the uterus many eggs, many fertilized eggs, like five or six or seven, hoping that that way at least one of them would implant and turn into an actual pregnancy. But that led to a greatly increased incidence of Twins, triplets, sometimes even more than that. And even twins are an increased problem in terms of um, both the pregnancy and the outcome, you know, whether the babies are going to end up being healthy. So, so that's always been, for IVF and for many other fertility treatments as well, has always been one of the biggest possible risks. Robin, bottom line for you, what's going to be the legacy of uh, Leslie Brown? I actually think that because of her bravery, she initiated an entire new technology and an entirely new way of thinking about having children. And I think it really has changed the way this generation of young women is thinking about childbearing. Robin Morantz Hennig, the author of Pandora's Baby, How the World's First Test Tube Baby Sparked the Reproductive Revolution, speaking to us about the late Leslie Brown, the world's first IVF mother. Robin, thank you very much. My pleasure. You're listening to The World on Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, Global Reach, Local Impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. You may have heard this week about the closing of Rwanda's Gachacha courts. The grassroots community courts were used to try a backlog of cases stemming from the 1994 genocide. The courts were controversial, and many wondered whether their justice conformed with international standards. But community and tribal courts have a long tradition in sub-Saharan Africa. For centuries, people there have used them to settle land claims and other civil disputes. These courts are typically made up of chiefs and village elders who serve as judge and jury. In some countries, these courts continue to operate alongside modern ones. In fact, in South Africa, they're considering giving them official legal status. But that plan faces strong opposition from one group in particular, poor rural women. Andres Kelto reports from the eastern province of KwaZulu-Natal. 
Tombi Mavishlombe stands with her daughter outside of a small thatch roof hut. A field of wild grass surrounds them. Nearby, her son grinds some dried maize into cornstarch. Mavishlombe lives here with her eight children, sewing and farming to make ends meet. But this year, she hasn't been able to work much. She holds up her left hand to show why. A local man attacked me on a bus. He elbowed me, grabbed my neck, and started biting me. She says the man bit her finger so badly that it became infected. It turned green and then pitch black. The pain was awful. It was unbearable. Eventually, her finger had to be amputated. A few days later, Mavishlombe went to a tribal court. She wanted her attacker to be punished. But the tribal chief refused to listen to her. He said he wouldn't hear my case because I'm a woman, a crazy woman. He would only talk to a man. Observers say it's common for tribal courts to refuse to hear women's cases. Women have to be represented by a man. But Tombi's husband lives and works nearly 200 miles away. So her case was never heard and her attacker never punished. She's now lost faith in the tribal justice system. No justice is going to come out of the tribal courts. Tribal courts have operated in South Africa since pre-colonial times. But their role in the country's modern justice system is not well defined. So the government is now considering legislation that would bring the courts into alignment with modern laws. For instance, women would be given the right to represent themselves. The bill would also make tribal courts part of the modern justice system, and their rulings would be legally binding. These courts are the original administrators of justice in South Africa. Fatakile Holomisa is a tribal chief and the president of the Congress of Traditional Leaders of South Africa. His group supports the bill. He says it's critical to preserve the indigenous court system. In fact, those people who say African ways of justice administration are backward and outmoded and outdated are perpetuating the, the program of colonialism that Africans to be civilized, they must live according to the white man's ways. Do I believe that our systems, in fact, are are more superior than those of the whites? He says so-called white courts, or modern courts, feel foreign to many black South Africans. The atmosphere there is uh, intimidating. The language that is used is predominantly English, sometimes Afrikaans but definitely not the African languages. But opponents say the new legislation would put too much power in the hands of rural chiefs. You know, it entrenches that notion of customary law that says that traditional leaders are autocrats and um, ordinary people are just their subjects. That's Sindiso Manisi Weeks from the University of Cape Town's Law, Race and Gender Unit. She says the bill would give chiefs the right to decide what is customary law. That means they could still require women to be represented by men if that's the tradition in their area. They could even prevent women from owning land or property. In a cluttered office in the coastal city of Durban, Suzani and Gubane chats with a colleague. Their organization, the Rural Women's Movement, has about 50,000 members in KwaZulu-Natal. And Gubane says rural South African women are tired of living under the iron fist of tribal leaders. We're working with a group of women who are saying they have never seen democracy. She says poor rural women are often forced to pay unfair taxes to their chiefs. Now they've been showing up at hearings in huge numbers to fight the tribal courts bill. There was resistance left and right in all the public hearings. 
and some of them even had more than 500 people. Back at the farm, Tombi Mavishlombe, who lost her finger, says giving tribal courts more power is a bad idea. But she's grown equally skeptical about modern courts. After the chief in her area refused to hear her case, she took it to a civil court. And that didn't work out either. The case against my attacker was dropped by the civil court. I wasn't given an explanation as to why. She suspects her attacker, who is from a powerful local family, threatened or paid off the magistrate. She says it doesn't matter what kind of court you go to, modern or tribal. What matters is whether the people running it are corrupt. For The World, I'm Anders Kelto, KwaZulu-Natal, South Africa. You can see photos of Tombe Mavishlombe and her family at theworld.org. Now, before we go to the break, we have an update about a Scottish girl and her hugely popular food blog. Martha Payne is nine years old, and she lives in the town of Loch Gilped. Her food blog is called Never Seconds and features Martha's photos and comments on her school cafeteria lunches. Some comments are positive and some are not, which is why the school council banned her from posting photos of the food. But they dropped the ban and Martha's received enormous support and money. And that's because Martha is using her blog to raise funds for a charity for African children. It's called Mary's Meals. Here's the BBC's Colin Blaine describing it to us last week. This is a charity which provides food for school children in Malawi. And they say that for £10 or about $15, they can feed a child for a year. And they have described Martha's efforts as amazing. They have said that she will be feeding hundreds of children through the efforts of herself and those who have donated money. She will be feeding hundreds of children in Malawi. In less than two months, Martha's blog has received five million hits and it's raised more than $125,000. Martha's original goal was about a tenth of that. So she will be feeding a lot of children in Malawi. These happy, grateful kids at a primary school in Blantyre, Malawi, are thanking Martha for her efforts. The money she's raised will go towards a new kitchen for the school and meals for a year. The school plans to name the kitchen after Martha Payne. Here's what her dad, David Payne, says about that. I'm really touched by that. Martha's really touched by that. And children really care about each other. Martha's, you know, she's a good kid, but she's, you know, she's a pretty normal kid. And it's great when, you know, a normal kid can make such a difference. And it's great that so many people are making a difference with her. And David, Pl- David Payne says his daughter would like to see for herself what her blog has accomplished. Martha's very keen to get out to Malawi. And as a dad, I'd, I'd really like to support that. It's, it's obviously quite a very a, a difficult thing for us to do as a family. But she's very keen. And she, she said that she would like to go and spend a couple of days in the school there. And maybe she doesn't realize quite how far away it is. But that would be her wish. You can find a link to Martha Payne's blog, Never Seconds, at theworld.org. I'm Marco Werman. Mexico's first woman presidential candidate probably won't get elected, but women are making big strides in Mexican politics. I have a running bet with several colleagues as to whether the U.S. or Mexico will have a uh, woman president first. Uh, my money is on Mexico. We visit a border town where two women are running for mayor ahead on the world. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Several countries in Latin America are all too familiar with the crime and violence associated with drug trafficking. And as the death toll mounts in Mexico and elsewhere, a growing number of politicians in the region have called for decriminalizing drugs. They argue that would take the profits out of the illegal trade, which in theory would help reduce violence. Now the government of Uruguay is taking that idea one step further. It wants to get into the business of selling pot. The BBC's Vladimir Hernandez is following the story. The government in Uruguay is trying to propose a change in the legislation that will allow them to take over completely the control of the sales of cannabis or marijuana cigarettes. I mean, just to have an idea of what this means, this is going to be the government authorizing shops to sell it, the government fixing the price of marijuana cigarettes, and the government certifying the quality of the marijuana so users are, in a way, protected from any type of cheap pot, if you want to call it that way. What's driving this plan? I mean, is it the potential windfall of revenue for the government? One way of seeing it is that they're going to get a lot of income from the tax of sales from marijuana and presumably uh, there's some argument that the sales might increase being an illegal market right now and people who don't access it because they they fear all the implications of having to buy an illegal drug to an illegal seller. But also, this is part of a security plan which the government is proposing to tackle crime. And what they're aiming for is to stop youths from going into substances like crack cocaine, which has been blamed recently for a, a big rise in the crime wave in Uruguay because it's a cheap and addictive substance that is commonly used in the poorest areas of Uruguay. So in a way, they're trying to tackle the drug gangs and avoiding people having to go to these people to buy illegal drugs. So they are going to make criminal gangs or drug dealers have a massive uh, blow to their income. And in a way, it's, it's a different way of tackling crimes. That's the way they see it. If the state is going to take control and start selling pot and basically controlling the quality of it, it, it sounds like people value it down there in Uruguay. How many people there uh, smoke pot? Well, it is, it is estimated that at least 20% of the population, of the youth population, does try marijuana on, on a regular basis or has tried it in the past. It is a common drug, but it's probably not the main issue the country has because the poorer youths in the country are having a lot of problem with crack cocaine, which is something... It's so addictive that it takes people to have to steal and and it is being blamed specifically for the rise in robberies and even gun shooters in Uruguay, which must be said in the context of Latin America, Uruguay has so far been always one of the safest countries in the region. But the government is acknowledging that they have had a rise in crime, which is affecting their daily lives. And is that also the reason why the presidents of Guatemala and Costa Rica have also considered decriminalization? I mean, it seems to be on the political agenda, cannabis is on in several countries in Central and South America? Well, there's a lot of political pressure in South America on what the government should do on drugs. So far, the the straight policy since, let's say, the Reagan administration in the US has been a war on drugs. Let's put some arms into it. Let's tackle it with with armed security forces. And that hard stance is probably under fire right now from a lot of lobby of, of changing this policy into probably alternative issues that so so the countries don't go the way that what is happening in Mexico, where in the last five years, the government has gone on a war on drugs, but that has only resulted in huge amounts of deaths as well. Uruguay is much more different than Central America, where there's a bigger presence of, of drug cartels and stuff. But in Uruguay, this is much lesser, and this is probably more petty consumption of hard drugs. Probably there's scope for alternative policies like this one. 
If the Uruguayan government is going to register users of cannabis, that means they're going to learn who smokes pot and old paranoia dies hard. Will that privacy issue keep people smoking underground, do you think? The short answer is probably yes, because even the groups who promote liberalization of the consumption of marijuana in Uruguay have been a bit wary of saying, well, hang on, now everybody's going to know that I smoke pot. And you can see that in social networks where there are even the, the groups who promote liberalization of drugs are not too comfortable with the concept of the state knowing mm. each one of the individuals who consumes marijuana in Uruguay. Vladimir, how serious is this proposal and what are the obstacles it'll face on the way to becoming law? The government itself said that the intention of the proposal was to raise a debate on what's the best way to tackle drugs in Uruguay. It will be hotly debated from the reactions we have seen in social networks and in the newspapers. This will be something debated hotly in Congress. It's not quite clear what the result will be about this, but what it is clear is that it has already begun a debate on it. Marijuana cigarettes, you kids call them joints. Anyway, the BBC's Vladimir Hernandez, thanks very much for telling us about this. Cheers. Another topic that social networks south of the border are hotly debating right now is Mexico's upcoming presidential election. It's less than two weeks away. This year, for the first time, one of the major party candidates in Mexico is a woman. But women in politics is nothing new there. Take the border city of Aqua Prieta. It's just south of Douglas, Arizona. The town has already had a female mayor, and right now two women are running for the city's top job. From station KJZZ's Fronteras desk, Peter O'Dowd reports. By now, Mexico's political season is hot, like a scorching Mexican summer. This music plays from a dusty sedan that drives through the streets of Agua Prieta. It's sounding an anthem for the National Action Party, the PAN. This is the first time Mexico's conservative Catholic Party has had a woman candidate run for mayor of Agua Prieta. But Lolita Montaño is no political neophyte. She's already done stints in the state legislature and the city council. On this day, she's witnessing a wedding and touring the offices of City Hall. I'm a woman who wears skirts, she says, but I can wear the pants comfortably, too. Like many other border cities in northern Mexico, Agua Prieta suffers from an image problem. So Montano's priority is restoring the town's reputation as a safe place for Americans to visit. But even as she campaigns here, Montano is paying attention to another race. A woman from her own PAN party is trying to become Mexico's first female president. It's not so much that men didn't want women in politics. It's that up until now, women have never stood up and said, I'm here. Well, I'm here. Montano's campaign manager, Arturo Romero, puts it this way. I think in Mexico it's time for the woman to lead us here in Agua Prieta and to lead us here in Mexico. Romero and others suggest that Agua Prieta provides an example. The rest of Mexico will soon follow. The town's already been run by a woman. Her name is Irma Taran, and she's running for the job again this year, holding boisterous campaign rallies like this one. Women in Mexico are making really, really significant strides. Eric Lee studies trans-border issues at Arizona State University. He points to a handful of women who've already landed powerful positions in the country's unions and government. The Mexican public has, has become accustomed to this very quickly. In a way, they've had to. For the past decade, Mexico's had a quota system in place that requires 40 percent of a party's candidates for federal office to be women. 
but they've struggled to comply, and Mexico is lagging behind other Latin American countries that have already elected female presidents. Still, Lee says Mexico's doing better than at least one of its neighbors. I have a running bet with several colleagues as to whether the U.S. or Mexico will have a uh, woman president first. Uh, My money is on Mexico. That landmark isn't likely to come this year. The PAN candidate, Josefina Vazquez Mota, is behind in the polls. Analysts say that's not because she's a woman. Anyone following the current president, Felipe Calderon, would have trouble. But at the street level, there is still a perception by some that Mexico isn't ready for a woman. In Agua Prieta's main plaza, shoe shiner Uriel Castillo takes a break from watching TV to talk politics. He says gender does make a difference. A woman can't fight against drug traffickers and all that rebellion. She could be threatened and fearful because she's a woman. The 59-year-old says that's why he won't vote for a woman president. But Castillo says he's fine with a woman running Agua Prieta because this town is a relative oasis of calm along a turbulent and violent border. For The World, I'm Peter O'Dowd. The Arctic took center stage at the Rio Plus 20 Sustainable Development Summit today. But the attention didn't come from the official delegates at the conference in Rio de Janeiro. Think more along the lines of Paul McCartney, Robert Redford, and actress Penelope Cruz. They're all part of a campaign announced by Greenpeace in Rio today to create a global sanctuary around the North Pole. With the official event unlikely to produce much action, much of the focus this week is on the thousands of activists who've descended on the Brazilian city. One of them spoke with us today from a local Internet cafe. She's 18-year-old Alicia Huggins from Trinidad by way of Brooklyn, New York. She's a member of the Global Kids Youth Delegation to the summit. She decided to go to Rio because she was concerned about climate change and environmental justice. It was during the summer. We had a hurricane And I live in Coney Island, so I live literally right across the street from the beach. And that's when we had to evacuate because the city was so nervous about what would happen and if we would be flooded. And I guess that's the moment that I realized that, like, climate change is really important. And Rio Plus 20 as a conference, I just really wanted to be part of that. You know, I feel like it's history. Right. So tell me what you've been doing in Rio this week. And is it kind of what you expected you would be doing? Um, the conference is really different than what I expected. So there were so many high-level officials there. It was unbelievable. But one of the things that we noticed was that it's not really user-friendly for, like, youth or people my age because, like, what we're used to is something that's, like, interactive or, like, discussion-oriented and there should, like, be some dialogue. Mm. But there really wasn't any, most like, mostly any of that, you know? It was, like, all set out. Everything was already, like, structured. Well, I mean, this is one of the criticisms that a lot of people have had about these UN summits on sustainable development and the environment, that they've gone in a very predictable direction and that quite often the promises that are made get broken. I'm just wondering if you feel this whole idea of an international summit, it does it work anymore? I feel like getting people from all different parts of the world is really important because I think one of the main points of Rio was to, like, meet other people from different parts of the world and see what they're doing and see what initiatives they're taking in their communities, you know, and, like, get ideas from that and think globally by meeting all these different people and acting locally in your own communities. So I feel like that aspect of it is really important and, like, it's a lot of innovation and innovative people here and people with, like, great ideas. And so I guess we can learn from that. But I guess you are right. It is a bit predictable because everything is already set up. 
Well, I mean, Alicia, you belong to another group called the Human Rights Activist Project, and uh, the aim of that uh, group is to hold leaders accountable for unmet promises at, at summits precisely like the one you're at in Rio. How do people your, your own age who've gone to Rio feel about these broken promises? Um, I feel like there's a feeling of frustration with people who I talk to who are my age, you know, because at the beginning we didn't want this conference to be just business as usual. We wanted there to be some actual tangible solutions, but there's just a feeling of frustration going around because it seems like the politicians are here just for like a photo opportunity to say, that, hey, we're going to go do this. Yeah, this sounds great, but then they go back home and they just don't do it. So it's just a feeling of frustration, but at the same time, there's a feeling of hope. I was speaking to someone yesterday, and he was talk- he told me that when people are generally frustrated, it empowers him because it just means that something bigger is about to happen, you know? So I guess that gave me a little hope to like see that the conference actually might have some solutions coming out of it and some things that can be implemented. I mean... There are so many people who are here who are passionate about this issue and who want to see, like, action being taken, you know? So I guess that gives me hope about the future. 18-year-old environmental activist Alicia Huggins from Brooklyn, New York. She's attending this week's UN Summit on Sustainable Development in Rio de Janeiro, also known as Rio Plus 20. Alicia, thank you very much. Thank you. For today's GeoQuiz, head for the Chinese province of Jiangxi. There's a city in this province we want you to name. It's just south of the Yangtze River. The city is considered the porcelain capital of China. Our intern Angela Sun has been there. Yeah, my favorite piece of porcelain I actually saw in the city, it's a teacup that's made in the fashion of what they call eggshell porcelain. It's so thin and so fine that it's almost like paper, and they actually make carvings onto it. So when you hold it under the light, you can see the designs almost like a watermark. Legend has it that China, the country, got its name because of all the beautiful porcelain that was exported from the city. But the city's modern name is traced back to the Song Dynasty, when the emperor ordered that every bowl and every vase made here for the imperial household be stamped with his name. You've got just over one minute to come up with the answer. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from WGBH, producer of Antiques Roadshow, with family heirlooms, yard sale bargains, and long-lost items salvaged from attics and basements. Experts reveal the fascinating stories behind these hidden treasures, Mondays at 8, 7 Central, on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Time now to answer our geo-quiz. We're going to pay a visit to a southern Chinese city that's known for making some of the best porcelain in the world. There are so many kilns in this city that it's sometimes referred to as a city on fire. The world's intern, Angela Sun, joins us now. And Angela, tell us the name of this Chinese city with a massive reputation for making china, plates, bowls, and teapots. The city is Jingdezhen, China. Jingdezhen, China. And if I uh, find a stamp at the bottom of my favorite teapot, is there a pretty good likelihood it comes from Jingdezhen? Uh, well, Marco, actually, if you find a stamp under a teapot, if you even find one, it's actually probably a poor indicator of where or when the uh, teapot might have originated from because Jingdezhen ceramics was made for a number of different audiences. So you'd find the stamp when it was made for the royal family, but 
for export porcelain, not so much. If you really did come across a piece of authentic Jingde rain porcelain, you would know because it would cost a, a heck of a lot more than your average tea set at IKEA. Now, you visited the city yourself some years back. What, what did you see? I mean, was it really, did you get a sense of this notion of a city on fire? I visited the city in 2008. You could really tell from head to toe that Jingdezhen had a claim to porcelain. Uh, above me, that I saw you know, street lamps that were housed in these porcelain pillars. Um, below me, I'd be walking on these pathways that were covered in uh, porcelain shatters. And so the, kind of shards of the porcelain. Exactly, wow. yeah. And so nowadays, it's a historical, cultural, as well as artistic city for porcelain. We visited um, the Sambao Studio, which we have a lot of international artists going to Jingdezhen and work alongside other Chinese porcelain masters. What is the legend about Jingdezhen and the name China? Uh The legend goes that Jingdezhen got its name from the Jingde Emperor of the Song Dynasty when he started ordering that pieces of, you know, vases and plates, etc., made there for the imperial household be stamped with his name. And Zhen just means town. However, um, prior to that, Jingde Zhen was actually called Changnan, which sounds a lot like China. Mm. And so as this exquisite dinnerware was exported to Europe and the Middle East, the dinnerware became known as China, and the origin of this dinnerware, Changnan, basically became the name for the country, China. Now, I understand you also discovered some very old examples of this traditional porcelain much closer to home near Boston. Tell us about that. Yeah, the first place I visited was actually um, an arts and crafts store down in Chinatown, and they had porcelain that was labeled as Jingdezhen porcelain, but it was very clearly machine manufactured. Mm. Um, very inexpensive, you know, a small pen holder, maybe only $5. The second place I went to was Polly Latham uh, Antique. So I went to visit an antique store where I got to see a wide array of very fine export porcelain. The last place I heard of was actually the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem. The museum was founded by uh, sea captains, and uh, due to the trade with Asia, they brought over a lot of the um, porcelain. When you say export quality, what what does that mean? And how does it actually distinguish itself? Um, it was really interesting to see at Polly's store. They had, for example, this little picture that was designed by a Dutch artist. And he would send his designs back to China to get it painted. And then the actual porcelain piece would be sent back to the Netherlands, uh, as well as some pieces that were made for very well-known American political wealthy families that would have either like an American eagle or their family crest. So to some extent, export porcelain would differ from sometimes from Chinese porcelain in that the designs were actually very westernized rather than traditional Chinese motifs like dragons, flowers, etc. And what period was this, kind of 19th century? Even earlier than that, Mm. 17th century. Back when made in China meant something else. (laughs) Exactly. The world's intern, Angela Sun, thank you very much. Thank you. You can see pictures of Angela's trip to Jingdezhen and of the Jingdezhen ware she found in local Boston shops. We have a slideshow at theworld.org. Finally today, a global hit from our guest DJ in Oslo, Norway, Marius Asp. One of my favorite albums so far this year is Plumb, the fourth album by the British quartet Field Music, led by brothers Peter and David Bruis. Their music has been described as post-punk for pop lovers, which is quite accurate. 
but there's also a love for weird time signatures and surprising melodic turns with influences from 60s chamber pop and 80s new wave in their music. Imagine ecstasy in a jam session with the Beach Boys, produced by Jim O'Rourke, and you may get the picture. Or maybe not. Let's just listen to the rousing opening track, Start the Day Right. just heard a snippet from Start the Day Right, the first song on Feel Music's new album, Plumb. The album has a sweet-like form, with several songs clocking in below the minute mark. That fact only accentuates one of the main differences between Feel Music and a lot of other bands in a time when music listening often is fragmented and song-based. Their albums should be listened to from start to finish, and I really mean listened to. Take, for instance, the brilliantly titled From Hide and Seek to Heartache. There's so much going on here that it just doesn't work without an attentive listener. Listening to the British quartet Field Music, who just released their fourth album, Plumb. I've mentioned the band's ability to blend different styles seamlessly, but at their core is the Brewers Brothers' rare ability to write catchy, hooky power pop songs without compromising any of their artistic integrity. The best example of a song that would have been a hit single in a more just world is strangely enough tucked away at the end of Plumb. Check it out along with the rest of the album. Here's I've been thinking about a new thing. That was music journalist Marius Asp of Norwegian broadcaster NRK with his thoughts on the British group Field Music. You can listen to his other DJ picks at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. We're back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art, the Freeman Foundation, the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, 
and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.